Uh, now, we, we always honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. just because we think that the ministry of reconciliation and the pursuit of justice is so important um, for the way of Jesus. Um, but I know there are some, potentially a few of you in the room, definitely some of you that are online today, and a large swath of the American church, especially the evangelical American church, that gets a little bit cloudy with why the church, why the local church would make such a big deal about the ministry of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the, the sentiment would go like this. And again, I, I think most of us here are celebrating, but we're speaking to a lot of people right now. And for a lot of the American church, the sentiment you would hear is, well, well yeah, he, of course, it makes somewhat sense. He's a pastor, and yeah, he did some good things. But aren't we meant to focus on, on God and sin and forgiveness and heaven and, and hell and salvation, which then leads us to talk about Jesus, right? And Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection. And, and so, yeah, a large swath of the American church would go, yeah, he did good. And yeah, he was a pastor. And yeah, we obviously should push against hate. But Martin Luther King Jr.'s message pushed past some of those core fundamental fundamentals that I just rattled off, right? Like fall and sin and redemption and restoration and heaven and hell. And, and, and it moved to other things like political equality and race and, and history and anti-war and policing and brutality and power. And, and so we're not quite sure. This is what a lot of the church would, would start to, to push against. We're not, we're not quite sure that that stuff should be central to the local church and the ministry of Jesus. And so some of what you will hear is can we spend a little less time on race and politics and a little bit more time on Jesus and grace? And I want to say I, 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 I get that to some degree. I, I can empathize to some, some degree. But it's also why we've started this new series called Deconstructing Faith. And it's why today we talk about our second theological paradigm at Mosaic, which is God's love doesn't simply forgive and send to heaven. God's love always reckons with power. God's love always reckons with power. And every one of us in this room and all of those that are watching online, we all have some measure of power. Most of us choose what socks we wear in the morning. My, my son Judah never chooses the same two. It drives me freaking nuts. Uh, but we choose what train to take. A lot of us choose what to read before bed. But our, our power is also limited to some degree. Some people need to wear a specific uniform to work. My kids don't get a choice as to whether or not they engage in the life of the church at this point in time. My kids don't get to eat, choose what they eat for dinner. If they did, we'd be having Doritos and mac and cheese and sriracha every night. My kids are special. All right, so there, there's some limits to that power as well. And power is held in many different ways in culture. Each of us have ways that we possess cultural power and ways that we do not. Uh, often, we don't recognize the, the power that we actually hold until somebody points it out to us. And it's usually somebody that doesn't hold that same level of power. And those are the moments where you either see people kind of reflect with humility or get really defensive on social media platforms. And so there's some imbalances Empower throughout our city and throughout our country. Imbalances of power are real. I, I remember when I was 12 years old 
And I was playing at a playground with my cousin Johnny in Clawson, Michigan. And I got up on top of one of those, you know those like metal monkey bar dome structures? I was on top of one of those with my kind of toothpick, lanky 12-year-old legs hanging on each side of one of the bars that I was sitting on. Having fun, talking some trash with my 12-year-old cousin Johnny when all of a sudden a 15-year-old that Johnny knew from school came up who was clearly your stereotypical middle school bully. And uh, in the midst of talking some trash to my cousin, then walks over to me and all 130 pounds of this kid grabs my two legs that are hanging as I'm sitting with a bar in between my legs and just puts all of his weight down on my legs. I remember walking home crying. And part of it was just because it hurt. But the other part, I was, I was crying because it was one of the first moments that I actually experienced the vulnerability of not having the power that I thought I had. Experience the imbalance of power. Now, we know these power dynamics can be very harmful and dehumanizing for people. We're, we're, we're smart people. We understand this, especially those that don't have as much power. This is how ungodly power actually works in the world. Ungodly power mars the image of God in others. And because of it, God's love always, always, always will reckon with power. That's what God's love does. Another way of saying it, Matt Tebby, my friend who is the founder of Gravity Leadership, so much of this is from him today. But another way that we say it is God's love is not power blind. God's love always will reckon with power. And if God is exactly like Jesus, which was our theological paradigm that we covered in week one of this series, then God's love is going to always recognize, redistribute, which I know is going to be a triggering word for anybody that's prioritizing political worldview over the gospel. God's love always recognizes, redistributes, and then actually redefines power. This is what the love of God does seen in Jesus. The way of Jesus is to recognize, redistribute, and redefine power. And so let me give you a little context of Jesus' story and how Jesus actually recognized power. See, in Jesus, God is actually human. Which means that God knows what it is to be on the wrong side of power. Which should be somewhat disorienting to us. That the creator of the cosmos in Jesus knows what it is to be on the wrong side of the power. He is a colonized Jew living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. This is first century Palestine. He lived far away from the center of religious and economic and political power in a Gentile mixed part of Galilee on the other side of gross little Samaria. And as a marginalized person... God in Jesus, again, this should be disorienting. God in Jesus, it's a marginalized person, had to learn how to see power to survive. In fact, one of the most devastating things that the symptoms of colonization show us is that empires are able to turn its own people against each other. We've seen this in the U.S. Jesus experienced this back in his day. Israel's own King Herod institutes what would be called today a police state, complete with loyalty oaths and surveillance and informers and secret police and imprisonment and torture and brutal retaliation to any type of dissent. Herod and most religious leaders were political puppets of Rome. Which again, there's some similarities to our time here in the United States. Herod and political leaders... Were, were, were puppets, religious leaders, were puppets of Rome. 
Which is why the gospel of Mark is so crazy when Jesus shows up on the scene and one of the first things that is communicated is the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. This is Mark 16. Jesus came with a kingdom in complete contrast to Rome. Uh, My friend Matt says the kingdom was a socio-political reality in which those who suffered under the kingdom of Rome, which were the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, and those that suffered under the oppression of Satan, the demon-possessed, the lame, the sick, were set free and were liberated by the alternative power of loving justice in God's kingdom. Jesus recognizes and reckons with power. He's honest about the power that Rome had. He's honest about the power that he might not have. He doesn't coast over history and pretend like there's no implications for what has happened in the past. He recognizes power and who has it. And so if the church is actually going to follow the way of Jesus, we have to do the same. We cannot coast over history and the power dynamics that have been at play. We need to be honest about it and talk about it. I have to be honest about the fact that I am a white man with some power that I have because of certain historical systems that have been at play. If we cannot do that, we're not recognizing power the way that Jesus did. The way of God, if God is exactly like Jesus, is to first recognize power, but then it's to redistribute it. Now, I know some of you are like, are you socialist? Oh, stop. Let's get, back to, let's get back to the gospel accounts. Right? Let's go back to the gospels. One of the ways Jesus did this was by, by taking what power he had as a Jewish rabbi and disrupting the patriarchy of his male-centric world. A world that was dominated and organized by men. Which, again, we, we, we take cues from Jesus, and so it's very important for us to know who is organizing much of the way the world works. When it comes to voting rights, voting boundaries, when it comes to resourcing churches and church plants, do we actually know, right? That's something I have to think through as somebody who's in the kind of the process of starting churches, right? We have to know who is organizing and dominating the systems. As a man, Jesus had power and privilege that women and children and Samaritans didn't have. And Jesus reckons with his own power by actually leveraging his privilege on behalf of those who had left. So when speaking about divorce and sexual immorality, Jesus is always, go back to the text, he is always speaking directly to men who use divorce in a way that made women vulnerable in injustice. On several occasions, Jesus engaged with women and gave away power to women in front of, not in secrecy, in front of other men. Whether a prostitute or an older woman who needs to be physically healed or Mary Magdalene, Paul would later do this in his letters as well. Jesus taught women as his disciples, which was a position that was usually reserved for the most scholarly of men. He submitted himself to women for his daily needs. I, I have a friend, we'll call him, we'll call him Robert, who said every time he, he came into his executive team meetings with ideas, at least for the most part, when he pitched his ideas, the executive team would just would love it, rant and rave about his ideas. He said one day, though, his counterpart, a woman, a friend of mine, came to him and said, this is ridiculous, Robert. He's like, what are you talking about? She said, we collaborate on each of these ideas. We walk into the same meeting together. 
And when we step into these meetings and you propose our ideas, they rant and rave about your creativity and your ingenuity. When I walk in and pitch our ideas, half the time they don't even respond verbally. The other half the time they look to you to see what your response and affirmation may or may not be. And so Robert goes, yeah. Recognizes the power, dynamic at play, says, yep. And Robert says, so this is what we did. Every time she would go in and speak. And let me tell you, she, she wasn't meek either. She's not a meek woman. This friend of mine is a strong, visionary Latina leader. She is strong. She was being heard. So Robert says, anytime we went in and she would begin to speak and everybody else would start to turn to him, he would then turn his back to everyone else and stare at her so they would have to redirect their gazes back to the woman that was speaking. This was the way that he redistributed his power, even in his physical posture. We, we can do this. This isn't just finances that I'm talking about. That we, we can redistribute power as parents and as neighbors and as leaders and as people in majority culture. This is what Jesus did. So the way of Jesus recognizes power, we're honest with it. We're honest with how it works in our world, both individually but also structurally and systemically. We see our own degree of powerfulness or powerlessness and we're honest about it. Two, we redistribute power. We take responsibility for the power that we own and we leverage it in justice, dealing love for the sake of others. And I know, I, I, I know that some of you watching are like, Dan, but, but, but you just we give stuff away. We're like, like, shouldn't we teach a person to fish and not just give out the fish? Isn't that like a proverb? I, that's not from the Bible. I don't, like that's, I, I don't, it's just frustrating. It's, 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 we have to be honest that there is a, a capitalistic framework that is very different than a gospel framework. And it's okay that they're different and it's okay to, to, to be all right with a capitalistic framework. We just have to be honest about the fact that they're two different things. And that Jesus would probably look at you and go, why don't you give a person a fish and also teach them how to fish and stop dealing with some false duality. Lastly, we redefine power. Now, the, the power in our time is defined as, as being able to do something or to, to be able to act in a particular way. And yet God, in Jesus, redefines this for us. So Jesus is finally betrayed by one of his disciples named Judas, who turns him into the power hungry, uh, whose power has been threatened by Jesus' authority. And Judas betrays him and gives him over to the powerful religious that have been frustrated by Jesus' authority, which is very important for us to acknowledge that there is differences between cultural power and spiritual authority. We should be pursuing one, not the other. And as they take Jesus, it says that Peter, one who is still clinging to the world's definition of power, has the ability to do something or act in a particular way and does and he takes a sword and he hacks off the ear of one of these soldiers. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, put your sword back. Put your sword back. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. For, for whoever lives by cultural power will also likely unravel because of cultural power. 
Do you think I cannot call on my father, Jesus says, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus is then taken captive. Stands trial as stripped, spat at, whipped, flogged. Then finally gets to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate actually wants to set him free. Pilate's not down with this plan. He knows there's something different about Jesus. He doesn't want to have his blood on his hands. But finally, the religious leaders in cultural power continue to push and push and push. And so finally, Pilate kind of buckles down and asks Jesus the question. And he's just like, they're saying that you think you're the king of Israel. Well, what do you think? Tell me what you think before I have to do something that I don't want to do. And Jesus says, listen, yes, my kingdom is not of this world, though. If it were, and this sounds a lot like Matthew 26 in his response to Peter. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So you have the world that says power is the ability to do something or act in a particular way. But based on these two responses that that are just two of many that we see like this, Jesus seems to redefine this and say something different. Jesus instead redefines power as the ability to do something or act in a particular way and to choose instead to do different for the sake of others. Jesus, with all the power in the cosmos, lets the evil of humanity run its course on him. Has the ability to stop it and says, no, I'm going to let you do your absolute worst to me. To show you the power and the potency of my love and how much my love can trump your cultural power. This is, the, this is the gospel account. And, and when we actually understand that Jesus shows us a different type of power that is deeper and more profound than cultural power, it allows us, well, one, it melts and moves our hearts. But then two, it allows us to actually be honest and recognize the power and confront the power that we have. It gives us the freedom to do that because we're no longer defined by what power we do or don't have. It gives us the motivation to redistribute the power that we have because no longer are we defined by it. And instead, we're using power for the sake of others the way we just saw Jesus do in his death and resurrection. And we redefine it. For the city, we get to redefine it. And this is why talking about racism and history and power dynamics and political equality is so central to the guts of the gospel. And I, and I, and I, know, I know some of you at home watching this and potentially some of you in the room are just like, but Dan, listen, I grew up and this is what I knew about the gospel. The gospel is I was created by God. I sinned and fell short of the glory of God. I need to follow Jesus so I can go to heaven and not hell. That's what I know. And that's fine. But in part, what you did was you went, this is certainty and I like certainty because all humans like certainty. And this is all this other stuff that we need to push aside and make not relative to this because I need to live in certainty. 
And I'm just telling you, this is fine, but it's not the way of Jesus on a daily basis. And so one of the things we have to do, and this is why we're doing this series, is we have to go back and go, why, why have I wrapped my arms around all that is certain? When I know based on the book of Genesis, we were actually created to thrive in uncertainty. The original sin was needing to be certain about everything. We were created to be fully alive in uncertainty because that is where we get to depend upon Jesus. And so how do we start asking, what, what assumptions have I brought into my faith because of how I was brought up, if I was brought up with it? Which of those do I have to shed? And can I? And I know some of you are going to be going, no, no, I, I don't want to deal with this stuff because I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to rethink why I believe some of the things that I believe. And I'm like, good. This is actually how we get to experience Jesus. And so I'll just end with something my, my wife said this week. Actually, Jordan and Melissa were there, and we all sat there listening to her going, oh, my gosh, that is profound. She, she said, listen, people are, are concerned about second-guessing their religious worldview and going back and asking why I believe what I believe. They're scared that if you start asking questions, it's all going to crumble. And yet when you look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and when you look at Mary Magdalene, and when you look at the majority of disciples, the way that they experienced the grace of Jesus was that they discovered Christ, and then they lost Christ somewhere along the way. Whether it was in the temple, or whether it was at the burial, and then they rediscovered Christ again in a more profound way. Brian Zahn talks about this. There's a rhythm in our understanding and our transformation that happens where we find Christ and there's awe and there's, it's incredible and there's grace and mercy, but then we lose him as we ask questions about why we believe what we believe. And then we rediscover him. Why? Because Jesus is always moving. Jesus is always moving. And so if we're stuck here with creation and sin and heaven and hell, and we can't dive into any of the race and any of the political equality and any of the stuff that Jesus seemed to care about so deeply, we're standing still. And Jesus is moving. And the only things that stand still are fake idols. And so, Mosaic, I want you to be a courageous church that asks why we believe what we believe. Because in doing so, I think we actually get to follow the moving Christ throughout the world that changes us from the inside out and forms us into a people of reconciliation that look like the Jesus of the Gospels. And so, we get to end our service by receiving communion today. And Macho and the band are going to come up and lead us in one last song. As they do, if you have not, if you have not gotten a, a COVID-safe, friendly communion cup at the back, you can do that now. Sophie, I see, is grabbing some and can hand them out as well. But why don't we, why don't we stand and sing together before we receive communion?